0: Hey, what's up, ASM High School? We have a new series that we're starting here called Love Month, looking at how we honor God, ourselves, and others with our sexuality. And high school, it's just you watching this. I mean, there might be a middle schooler who clicked onto this video. Click off right now. This isn't for you. Just kidding. All right, well, we're starting this series, again, called Love Month, and uh as we dive into this, I want to give us our big idea right off the bat. And then I want to give us some groundwork that we're going to work from as we go through this next uh, three-week series. And so our big idea is simply this, that everyday followers of Jesus pursue holiness in response to his sacrifice. And, And what I want us to understand right there, right away, is that sexuality is an area in which we pursue holiness. It is not the only area, and we'll get into that in a moment. But there's a few key concepts, like I said, that I would like us to set as a foundation for this series. And first is, if we're gonna talk about sexuality, we have to define what it means. What are we meaning when we talk about that? Well, as we look at the culture at large, as I look around, as you watch TV, movies, just kind of view media that's coming in, and we're filtering, I think it can be defined very simply like this, as a culture. This is not our definition, but the culture at large, that it's kind of like just recreational play between two consenting individuals or the biological coupling of two people for sexual release. I mean, you can see that in just about any... Uh, sitcom that you turn on on TV because when they're sitting around the coffee house or in the living room or wherever and someone mentions how long it's been since they've had sex, everyone acts totally surprised as though you can't continue living if you don't have some type of sexual release. Well, I want to propose a different definition that's put forward in scripture. As we see sex uh, put forward in the Bible, in in God's word, what we see is this term that comes up, Echad. And Echad has this deep for meaning of oneness or being fused together at the deepest level. It's it's this. It's the bonding of two people into one entity. Both spiritually and physically, body and soul. It's actually a much higher view of sexuality than what the world offers us. So the goal in this series will be to help you as a student in high school or one of our leaders or even maybe a parent to see the high view of sex that God has as something to pursue and not to avoid. The second thing that we need to recognize is that we will be using the greatest two commandments as our filter through which to view God's sexual ethic as laid out in the Old and New Testament. Uh... This is our lens, love God and love others as yourself. In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked by one of the teachers of the law, which is the greatest commandment. And Jesus answers that it is to love God with everything you are and to love others as yourself. And we can actually filter all of our life through that lens. Every portion of our life as we pursue Jesus and following him through this lens, including our sexuality, which is why our series will follow this flow. To honor God with your sexuality, to honor others with your sexuality, and to honor yourself with your sexuality. Now, the next piece of groundwork, number three, is this, is that sex is a good thing gift god created sex okay read genesis 1 and 2 god's first command to adam and eve to the first two humans on the planet was as husband and wife was essentially get busy getting busy that was it go and make more covenant partners god wasn't surprised by sex it's not as though god was looking down in the garden of eden one day and went adam get off her right that didn't happen God created sex, and if God created it, it's good. We're going to use this paradigm. God is good, all right? No one is good, but God alone is actually what Jesus tells us. God's creation, therefore, because he is good, he's incapable of creating something that is not good. He's good. His creation is good, and it was created for his good pleasure and for our enjoyment. But God also sets up boundaries And those boundaries are for our good that we might enjoy his creation and his good gifts to the fullest extent in the way that they were meant to be enjoyed. And through sin, we pervert his good gifts. Right? The apostle Paul says so as much in Romans chapter 6, he says, should we go on sinning that grace might abound? In other words, should we keep sinning? Should we keep doing things that are wrong so that God might be seen as greater? No. Why? It's a perversion of the gift of grace. We can see this in other areas of our lives as well, not just sex. Maybe it's language. The way in which we speak to and about other people uh, can definitely be used as a weapon. It can be used in a way that is not good we can pervert the gift of language the gift that's been given us to converse with each other we can pervert anything that god has created for our good a good gift that he's given us and use it for evil or to hurt ourselves and others and put a rift in our relationship with god the next thing you need to understand in this series as we launch is that this is not a series addressing the lgbtq plus conversation that's just not what we're doing here. That's a, that's a message for another time. And we've actually done some of that in the past. For more resources, you can actually go to the links that will be below in our video description, uh, to our Ask Me Anything series that we did a while back where you can listen to Austin and Wyatt talk about, uh, the issues of homosexuality and LGBTQ plus issues and conversation. You can also check out our First Look podcast episode with Mitchell Morris, our high school intern, and Wyatt Martin. Uh, And that'll also be in the notes below in our description. See, but we are starting this series from the sexual ethic laid down by God in Scripture in both the Old Testament and echoed in the New Testament by Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and the other New Testament writers. This is repeated by Jesus in Matthew 9, 4 through 5, echoing back to Genesis saying that the man and woman were echad, or were one. Okay? This is echoed by the Apostle Paul in his letters to the New Testament churches and to, uh, by the writer of Hebrews, versus, uh, verse 4 in chapter 13. And I want to just make a note here. If you are a student who identifies in this category, in this group, Uh, I want to let you know that we love you and we are so glad that you are a part of ASM. But I also want to let you know that the conversation we're having in this series is not addressing that particular conversation. Number five, this, this last piece of information that we need to lay down as groundwork for this series is there is grace and forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. And grace and forgiveness from Jesus poured out at the cross covers all of our sins. You will likely potentially hear something in this series that you're going to go, Hey, I've done that. I've crossed that line or, or whatever. And if you fall into that place, I want you to know there's a point of clarity that we need to have here there is grace and forgiveness found in Jesus. And I want you to also know something else. Because I think sometimes this gets mingled up in the church and we, we kind of lose, lose what it means, what needs to be forgiven and what is sin. I want you to know that if you carry any shame because you've been a victim of abuse sexually, there is no need for forgiveness on your part. And so I want to be clear here that Jesus writes narratives of grace Jesus does not write narratives of shame. He offers forgiveness and grace. Now we're going to dive into our passage. Before we, before we do, I just like to stop and pray for us real quick. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you've given us your word as a guide for how we ought to respond to the great love that you've shown us in your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross on our behalf. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help to convict us of sin and guide us in paths of righteousness as we look at this particular issue of sexuality and how it pertains to our holiness or sanctification and becoming more like Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, uh, we're going to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. So if you do not have a copy of God's Word, this is a perfect time to pause the video, run and get one, pull it up on your phone, whatever you need to do, but get a copy of God's Word in your hand, because we're going to be referring back to it as we go through this message. So again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Here we go. As for other matters, brothers and sisters... We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified or going through the process of becoming more like Jesus, that you should avoid sexual immorality. In other words, this is a part of that process, not all of it, a part of that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, keep your Bible because we're going to refer back to some of these verses as we go throughout this message. I want us to hear loud and clear right up front. Sex is an issue of holiness. It is not the issue of holiness. And I would be careful, just like if you get to an age where you're able to vote, that you not be a one-issue voter. Don't be a one-issue follower of Jesus. This is an issue as we pursue holiness, as we pursue Jesus. This is not the issue. Don't let any issue be your pet issue. Okay, point number one, sex matters because Jesus matters. Let's look at verse three again. If you have your Bible, let's refer back to it. It is God's will that you should remain sanctified. This idea of sanctifying or sanctification is this, this idea of being in process of becoming more like Jesus This is that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. In other words, avoiding sexual immorality is a part of this sanctifying process. I'm going to give you a a very, very cold, maybe lukewarm take. Uh, Mitchell gives me a hard time whenever I give hot takes that are not hot. And so I'll just tell you this one is not hot. Jesus died a virgin. Not because sex is dirty. Not because sex is gross. Uh, cause it's not. We've already identified that it is good, created by God, but Jesus followed God's standard for righteous living, and he was not married. We are, however, told, and I feel like this should give us some, uh, some hope, some understanding that Jesus is with us and on our side. We're told by the writer of Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, which means even tempted sexually. Now that might be the hot take for you, depending on how you were raised, that we, but he was without sin. Tempted in every way like we are, but without sin. See, the hope we have here is that Jesus actually understands our desire to operate outside of God's standard because he was tempted to do so as well. I want you to consider the two major views of Jesus' day versus Jesus' take on sexuality. Remember, sexuality, we've said, is echad or oneness or being together in fullness this deep sense of what sexuality means, not the cheapened version of the world. The Pharisees of Jesus' day, who Jesus was probably more aligned with theologically, which is why he was very hard on them, okay? The Pharisees saw sex as only for baby making. In all other ways, it was unclean and dirty. And they would have espoused that view and then sat in judgment over anybody else who thought differently. Now, that's not Jesus' view, His Sadducees, uh, the other religious uh, extremists, if you will, of the day, they didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. And so in many ways, they joined the world's view of things, sort of a live it up now, laissez-faire, if you will. Jesus, however, affirms God's design to be celebrated in the proper context of marriage, Tim Keller, who's a famous pastor of our day, one of the greatest theological minds probably of our current age, says this: Sex is the most delightful and most dangerous of all human capacities. Now, I want to remember us to remember that sex is good. Right? We have an entire book of the Bible called Song of Songs or Song of Solomon uh, that is dedicated to a husband and a wife who are writing about enjoying each other romantically and sexually. I want you to think of it this way. It's, it's like something that should be respected and given its due respect. And when it's not, can cause extreme damage. I like to think of a fire or a gun in the hands of a foolish person. They're both lethal but powerful tools when wielded with respect and placed in the proper context. And like sex, gentlemen, we both like to play with fire, right? Uh, but the fastest way to derail future plans for a young person for you is to have sex outside of the loving bond of marriage. And we'll get more into that next week as we have the conversation of loving others with our sexuality. Point number two, guys, taken from this passage, sexual self-control is life-giving. So if sexual self-control is life-giving, then sexual, the sexual freedom movement or do as you want with who you want is actually a prison we build around ourselves. When we take a low view, the cultural view of sex, what we end up doing is we end up hurting ourselves and others and we hurt our relationship with our creator. See, any sin allowed to run rampant in our lives widens the gap between us and our savior. Let's look at verses four and five one more time. Pull out your Bible again. That each of you should learn to control your own body. This is the idea of self-control, sexual self-control in a way that is holy. And honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Now, God's design versus uh, those who pursue passionate lust is what we're, we're told here, right? The sexual self control is a tool in the pursuit of holiness. It's not about sexual fulfillment. God's design is this that we would be one holy or set apart, that we would look different than those who don't follow God. And that we would be honorable. We would pursue honor or pursue righteousness. But the pagan is here the one that is put in, in kind of like juxtaposition to us, right? The pagan is the one not following God or actively running from God. They dishonor God's design for sex. So they are one, as we're looking through our lens, love God, love others. They are not loving God. And they dishonor the imago Dei, or what we call the image of God, in others and self by not giving that high standard for sex and oneness to the other person and themselves. And so they don't love others as themselves either. And we are therefore not living out the greatest two commandments. And we look at who Paul is writing this letter to, this church in a place called Thessalonica, what had happened for them was this snowball effect. The reason that he's talking about uh, this, this pagan culture is because they have literally just taken step after step after step, getting further and further and further away from God's sexual ethic to the point that you can go to a temple to worship the gods in Thessalonica and you can pay to have sex with a shrine prostitute you can pay to do that. They have gotten to the point of sexual slavery, snowballed completely out of control. And what we'll talk about in the weeks to come is this law of diminishing returns that what once satisfied us, because we're pursuing our own desire rather than God's standard, will cease to continue to satisfy us. Uh, I'll probably talk a little bit more about this in the coming weeks, but you can think of people like uh, John Mayer, who's a famous... Uh, famous musician and from the world standards could probably have just about anyone that he wants, right? Any girl he wants. And yet he's a man who has gone so far that he's openly admitted that he cannot even have sexual relations with a woman anymore because he has perverted his own mind so far by watching pornography. He's gotten so far out of whack. It's snowballed out of control. The law of diminishing returns has reared its ugly head in his life. Point number three is that sex creates oneness. We, we started off with this and we're going to end with this. That it creates oneness. Verse six shows us the relational quality of sexuality. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. So we're given here in verse six, this, this inverse argument for what sex does when it is used out of context. That sex outside of the context of marriage between a man and a woman, a monogamous, lifelong, committed relationship, creates division where it should create oneness. See, this is a reference to Genesis 2, 24. It's echoed by Jesus in Mark 10, uh, verse 8, and the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, verse 31, that we should not buy into the lie that it's just sex, I mean, maybe you've heard that before. It's, it's just sex, or we're just hooking up, or we don't want to define it. Well, what we find in scripture is that it needs to be defined. And it needs to be defined by a lifelong committed marriage relationship between a man and a woman because of what sex is. Not because of that particular boundary, but because sex is about oneness. It is about a deeper level of commitment So don't buy, it's just sex. Sitcoms and Netflix specials will totally spin this narrative, right? Sin, though, robs you of the life experience God wants for his covenant partners, for those who are followers of Jesus. Which is why I want us to begin, as we look at this idea, to replace the word sex with this concept of being one. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are you ready? 14, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old, not looking down on you because of your youth, but looking forward to how much life you have, are you ready for the lifelong pursuit of oneness with another person? going to be honest, I wasn't, right? I don't even know that when I got married, I was really ready for everything that that entailed, but I'm learning still today. Sex is deeply relational, and we will explore this more in depth next week as we look at how do we honor others? with our sexuality. Again, you guys, sex is good. No, it, it's great, right? All gifts from God are. And we can misuse any of his good gifts and we, then we will suffer the consequences. And some of those consequences are not easily seen and we'll discuss those in the weeks to come. Damaged hearts, minds, and souls. Some are easily seen. You probably heard about them in health class if you've been around long enough, right? Unwanted pregnancy, STDs, etc. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. It defines so much about how I view uh, pursuing God, and, but very specifically with sexuality. He says this, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum. Because you cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. See, sex is infinitely less important to our existence as humans, as covenant partners with God, than holiness and the pursuit of God. Sin will always try to alter our affections. It desires to keep us longer than we want to stay. It will take us farther than we intended, and it will charge us more than we wish to pay. All of God's designs are good. He created us with this unique ability to share this gift in marriage and to enjoy giving and receiving love from our spouse. While marriage is not a promise to anyone, it is worth the wait to those who get married. And it is worth the abstaining for those who don't get married for the infinite joy offered us in pursuing God in this aspect of sexuality and in other facets of life. As we close this, I want to ask three questions. And whether you're at home having this conversation with mom or dad or maybe a brother or sister, I don't know what your context is right now that you're watching this. Maybe it's just some introspective questions to begin asking yourself. But I would encourage you to involve somebody else in this conversation with you. Here's our three questions as we close. What are some of the advantages or blessings of pursuing God's sexual ethic as defined in Scripture? Number two, how can you continue to pursue holiness in the area of sexuality in your single life? And when I say single, I mean in the legal sense. You are not married. And why is it so important to understand forgiveness in this particular area? Guys, thanks so much for joining us. It's been great to be with you. We'll see you next week.